0: So the ex- exclusively Christian benefits of the gospel. These are for people who respond appropriately to Jesus alone. No one else gets these benefits. Um, the crosswork is not inclusive in the same way for everybody, right? So we have to talk about the exclusive benefits. I've talked about a lot of them in that meaning of the cross lesson last week. I want to give you the four that Bates draws attention to, which is adoption, right standing with God, Holy Spirit, fruit and eternal life, so the first is adoption, and i I think that this is uh, maybe the best way to start or the most helpful way to start is to talk about adoption because it emphasizes the individual and communal nature of salvation, so sometimes when we talk about salvation, we wrongly talk about it as if it 's merely a personal thing that personal individual and then corporate or communal relationship is hard to unravel. We can't really separate them. Uh, Now, there are some denominations that take this in a way that we don't, like Presbyterians, for example. So you can't separate the individual and communal, so you baptize your infants. We we maintain a both and when we talk about our salvation as adoption. Um, All of us who come to faith in Christ are adopted as one of God's children, but even in that phrase, we have to say, as one of God's children. None of us are exclusively God's child. Instead, we're added to God's family with Christ as our elder brother. So God is working through Christ to create a community of people, not to save individuals for themselves. Does, it, does this like, fine distinction make sense, what I'm trying to get at? Okay, I I grew up in a world that talked a lot about receiving Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and that's partly right. But what started out as a personal invitation to the gospel became an invitation to a private way of being a Christian, and Jesus doesn't give us that. He gives us a family that we're added into. And in fact, when you look at the election language in Ephesians, you know, we did this sermon series, so I'm referencing that. In Ephesians 1, I always thought that that, you know, God called us, selected us. Well, even in the way we say it, we have to talk about the group that's in mind. Um, sometimes we get in this, like, mind-boggling problem of trying to figure out this idea of individual election. And I think there, there are texts that address this, but most of the election texts actually talk about a, an election of a whole people. And individuals are added into that. We are as Christians, added into this elect people of God. Any questions or comments so far? Because I'm saying some things that might be a little bit nuanced. Dan. I think, I think the, the difficulty is you we know, don't fully understand the ability every one of us personally. He knows how are on the head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's we can't get into as uh, Dan Miller of Eden Baptist always says. You can't get into God's playbook when it comes to election. Like we we tried to play around in there and figure it out, but we can't understand it all. the The relationship is somewhat difficult, but it's important for us to stress that while we are called as Christ's disciples individually, we never remain individually a disciple. We join the disciples. You know, this is modeled initially with Jesus' 12 disciples. None of them are standalone uh, followers of Jesus. They follow Jesus together. And, and that picture of adoption stresses this because we're added to a family. We're grafted in. It's not, um, I got Jesus and now I'm on my own somewhere. When we talk about the gospel that way, it's the formation of a people for God, a royal kingdom, a holy priesthood, right? All of these uh, word pictures that Peter gives us drawing on the Old Testament. When we talk about it that way, it helps us understand that there are benefits for the individuals, but salvation is bigger than any individual can be, right? Okay, so what would help us out then when we talk to our Pado baptist friends, I think, is using this imagery And pressing that adoption metaphor uh, for all that it's worth in the Bible, which is you're always adopted as an individual and added to a family. So we don't say because one person was added, now all of their offspring are added or something like that. Every individual needs to be adopted into the family, but then we become a family. We don't remain individuals. All right, the next picture is right standing with God. Oh, go ahead, Julie. Julie. Yeah, that's a good question. How do Pado Baptists talk about this? Because there are different kinds of Pado Baptists, it's hard to say. But um, they they would be, you know, in a general like oversimplification, dealing more in terms of a larger covenantal identity that's passed on. That's cho- that there's a choice to reject it, not a choice to receive it. Maybe we we could say, um, yeah. And I I'll have to leave it there. But Cato Baptists are so diverse. You know, Presbyterians are just Baptists who time something differently. And this isn't as big of a, a thing there. It is, but it's not. You know, anyone who would believe in baptismal regeneration, like the great reformer Martin Luther, would look at this with a lot more tenacity and strength, um, you know, adding future generations through baptism. Yeah. So, you know, there's that parallel with Israel where Paul says that, like us, Israel was baptized into the Red Sea and they ate of the manna, which is a precursor of the Lord's Supper. So you, if you see continuity there, you can overly stress that and say we were all adopted like Israel, God's firstborn son. You know, that's how Israel's referenced in Exodus. Uh, but if you, you have to pay attention to what Paul says, which is they passed through the waters of baptism and they ate of the manna, the meal of the Lord, and many of them fell away. So we have to keep that other side of that picture in mind. So then right standing with God is the second picture. Generally in um, Christian lingo, we call this justification. Um, Right standing with God is what's in view though. Because Jesus bore the penalty for sin becoming a curse for humanity, he offers right standing with God. This imagery is legal in nature. So it's a picture where God is um, holding court and individuals are standing before him guilty, and Jesus reverses that verdict through his substitutionary atonement. Uh, We call this justification or righteousness. I was listening to a guy calling this rectification, which I think might be a helpful term, because justification and righteousness are like the same uh, Greek root words. So they're very, very closely related. We just don't have a verb for to make righteous. So the verb of to make righteous is justify. You know, so these are the same ideas. They're the same thing. And rectify and rectification provide a, a noun and, and verb form together. So that might be helpful. But the point is that people are given right standing before God through the legal verdict that's available in Christ. They're pardoned. Now, in systematic theologies, this is referred to as forensic justification. And that's always confusing if you watch CSI or something like that because you're thinking of the forensic lab. Well, all this means, it's drawn on the Latin terminology, in open court, right? It's an open court declaration of righteousness that's secured through Christ. Now, there are some Protestants who say that when you're justified, it's a, it's a legal fiction. It's just a declaration. You're not actually made righteous. It's just that something has changed on a ledger. Well, I think that's a more shallow form of Protestant theology. There's a second aspect of our declaration of justification, which is that there's actual inner transformation that happens through our union with Christ. So there are no people who are declared righteous who are not also being made righteous, Well, there are some Protestants who want to say you can be declared righteous and not be made righteous. Um, That's where easy believism, free grace, a lot of bad theology comes out of this. Just pray a prayer, get that forensic declaration, and then you're good to go. And and part of that's in a response to Roman Catholic theology that really stresses the inner transformation and not a legal declaration. Well, we need the two together, and I think the best Protestant theologians are making that argument. Um, There's a right standing or righteous that's from outside of us. We call that alien righteousness that's received both as a declaration and an act of transformation so that we become conformed into the image of Christ, entrusting ourselves to God and participating in his righteousness. Does that make sense, these two sides of justification? All right. There was a day in church history where people would be, you know, burned at the stake for... Bringing these things together, or emphasizing one and not the other. In both sides, we're doing it. You know, Protestants and Roman Catholics are doing this. Thankfully, um, we can learn from from that and not kill people, and also grab onto like the reality that there are aspects of both at play, and we shouldn't um, make one exclusive. Then, Holy Spirit fruit is the next picture. This inner transformation, this inner righteousness that's being formed in us, is being formed through the work of the Holy Spirit to progressively grow us into the image of Christ. This this is what we often call sanctification. I don't like using that term anymore to talk about our growth in Christ because the biblical authors don't use the term sanctified for progressive transformation into the image of Christ. So whenever we hear about saints or those who are being sanctified, it's not talking about progressive um, trans transformation into Jesus's image. It's more of the sacrificial language that sanctifies something. It makes it clear and able to enter into the presence of God. So we get some confusion then when we talk about sanctification, and you can't find that terminology in the Bible. But that's okay. We use terminology that way. It's just confusing. I I prefer to talk about Holy Spirit fruit or transformation into the image of Christ. Um, This is significant in the Story of redemption, because the prophets in Israel Scripture talk about the fact that the Holy Spirit will be given to God's people. Um, he'll be put in them. His the Spirit will be on their mouths, and that comes true in the giving of the Spirit following Christ's ascension, and it becomes true not just for Jews but also for Gentiles. So it's this giving of the Spirit that creates a global church, we might say, or a global following of Christ. It's for both Israel and non-Israelites. As the Holy Spirit indwells individual kingdom citizens and communities of faith, he transforms people into the image of Christ. Now, once again, the individual and communal aspect of our salvation comes together. So if you think back to the way that humans are talked about is the image of God. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27... All of humanity was made in God's image, so it's a collective thing to be an image-bearer of God. But then also, every single individual is a human image-bearer. So as image-bearers, as reflectors of God, it's both a corporate reality and an individual reality. As temples of God for the Holy Spirit, it's both a collective reality and an individual reality. So our salvation brings about both. Um, our, the transformation of ourselves to be a temple for the Spirit of God... And of a community that's being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. It's for this reason that our spiritual growth is always talked about in the New Testament within the context of a community of faith. No no aspect of the Holy Spirit fruit in our life is ever talked about in the Bible in terms of an individual. It's always in terms of a community of faith working out that transformation in community together. Um, so, if you think about all the commands to one another in the Bible, Mel was talking about this in that discipleship class. You can't forgive one another apart from the community of faith. You can't um, show love to one another. You can't pray for one another. All of these things, these one another's, are part of our Holy Spirit fruit. And then when you look at that list in Galatians five, twenty-two and twenty-three, um, the fruit of the Spirit are all relational realities: love works itself out in relationship. Joy can't happen in isolation. Um, Never in the Bible, at least to my count, can people talk about joy apart from an expression that's received by someone else and drawing them into that joy. Um, We'll see that even as John leaps in Elizabeth's womb. It can't remain a silent leap. Elizabeth, inspired by the Holy Spirit, interprets it as a leap for joy. You know, John can't tell her that. The Holy Spirit did. Um, Love, joy, peace, Peace doesn't, it's not talking about inner, you know, quietness and meditation or something. It's peace among people. Um, Long-suffering, you know, can you be long-suffering? Isn't it, I mean, with yourself, maybe? It's like, eh, I don't know. But if you work through that, it's all communal realities as the Holy Spirit transforms us into the image of Christ, which should be no surprise, because God is triune, right? So these Even um, when we talk about one of the persons of the Godhead, they're never individuals. Um, It's a triune God um, who transforms us into his image. All right, any questions on that Holy Spirit fruit? This is a benefit of the gospel that we can't have apart from Christ. And to connect it to kingship, the Holy Spirit comes only once Jesus has um, ascended to the throne. It's only as the king that he can authorize the sending of the Spirit. Eternal life. This is another um, important benefit of the gospel, but it demands clarification. And this is what I've been getting at bit by bit through the lessons. The notion that the gospel is primarily about getting to heaven has been popularized for a variety of reasons, some cultural, some theological, some merely sentimental, Part of the confusion is that eternal life and heaven are sometimes squashed together as if they're the same thing. Or in more technical terminology, they're conflated. Uh, Eternal life and heaven are separate things. Um, More than that, the Bible never explicitly says that the gospel's purpose is to help a person get to heaven. Uh, That would be a good challenge for you when you read through the Bible in a a year next time. Look for a single verse that talks about um, the gospel getting you to heaven when you die. This has become a popularized image that has uh, permeated the way Christians talk about and share the gospel, but it has almost no biblical foundation, uh, and and certainly no explicit biblical foundation. And if we care about the Bible's presentation of the gospel, we should adjust the way that we talk about it to match that of the biblical authors. Um, I think there is this attachment to the great revivals. You know, one was not a revival spiritually. It was just some social moral construct labeled as Christianity with that second great awakening. But then falling out of that with Billy Graham and these other people, this is the way the gospel was talked about because it worked at a giant crusade when you didn't have to talk to anyone ever again. You know, it's like, come listen to me, tell this great thing about this great message for your life, and then you can go. Now, I don't want to say that, that nothing good happened out of that, you know, I, I just was recalling that I read um, Louis Zamperini's biography where he came to faith in Christ and thankfully matured and developed in his understanding of what it means to be a Christian following that Billy Graham crusade. But this is not the, the message of the gospel, uh, even though it's commonplace. So the way I was trained to share the gospel was to ask someone this quest- question. What will you say when you die? And God asks you why he should let you into heaven do the biblical authors ask anyone that question? No, they don't. It's not a helpful way to frame the message of the gospel. Uh, The the aim of the gospel is not heaven, but loyal obedience to Jesus, the king, in a new era characterized by everlasting life. Um, If you want to think more about this. There's a really helpful book by this guy, Richard Middleton, called A New Heaven and a New Earth, Reclaiming Biblical Eschatology. It's a little bit thick. It's really, really good though. But Bates provides a good explanation, distinguishing eternal life in heaven here. Uh, The phrase Zoe Ionias, eternal life, you know, that's just a Greek phrase, is more precisely era life or life characterized by the era. Eternal life intends life characterized by the kingdom of God era. This is the time period when Jesus reigns victoriously over sin, sickness, and death. It's an era humanity can enter right now. Since in its fullness, this era includes the defeat of death and the presence of resurrection life, it is accurate to translate eternal life as everlasting life. But unfortunately, this is easy to confuse with heaven. So when you hear eternal life, it's partly right to think living forever, But it's also about the quality of life or the kind of life. The biblical authors often distinguish between different kinds of death, even labeling them the first death and the second death, or spiritual death, and then they would call physical death sleep. Because when they talk about life, they mean something different than just being ambulatory and breathing and having a pulse. They're talking about life characterized by the era of Christ's reign, Um, the fullness of life, that comes in connection to Jesus, who is life, right? So then we when we talk about being saved and having eternal life, that's not something only in the future, it's something now. Uh, every time we embody God, Christ's kingdom values, there's an inbreaking of a fuller form of life that we experience, life attendant to the age of Christ. Um, probably it would be better to speak in terms of everlasting resurrection life. You know, this concept of heaven is partly right uh, because we want to say, what happens to me when I die? We we ask that question. We want to know. And the biblical authors often just talk about going to the realm of the dead, right? Sheol or Hades in the Old Testament. Um, But Paul tells us whether we're living or physically dead, we're in Christ. We're with the Lord, so to speak. Um, In Colossians, our lives are hid with Christ in God, whether we live or die. And that's the hope we have. And then the greater hope is not um, this cultural conception of floating on a cloud, but being raised from the dead to live in the new creation as heaven comes down to earth. Uh, That's the vision that we want to give people. Um, We don't want to give them this wrong conception of, what heaven is, first of all, but also that all that being saved is to get out of a bad place and go to the good place. Instead, it's to be transformed and to live fully um, embodying the kingdom age life of Christ. Um, does, does that make sense? That, that's obviously pushing against a lot of the cultural conceptions of salvation and heaven. Um, I've talked about that a lot here, so probably you've heard it before. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yeah, we're grateful that God is always working to uh, reconstrue human uh, failings for his glory and good so that Abraham can um, sleep with Hagar, and God's people will still come to be, and some of Hagar's descendants will also enter into the kingdom, right? So, like, God's always working to figure that out. Um, So, I don't want to be too negative towards them, but we're not pragmatists, Um, and there's no way for us to do a tally of everyone who is, you know, at a Billy Graham crusade, who left the faith, or who say, like, we just can't do the stats on that. Only God can. So I'm just arguing we should adopt God's message, which does stir people up to say you're sinful, and sin demonstrates itself in the shallowness of life that we have. We're guilty before God. We need reconciliation with God, but that's a different message than um, telling, you know, a five-year-old, hey, you are going to go to hell forever. And do you want to go to heaven where you can ride bears? You know, that's, I got that message. Of course, I'm going to say, yes, I want to ride a bear in heaven. Who doesn't? You know, like, um, yeah, we've ridden a horse. I've ridden a sheep. Riding a bear is like next level. Well, that's like not Jesus's message. And that's the worst additions probably. um, But that kind of thing is just so popular. And as a guy who worked five summers at a junior camp I said that stuff for five years, you know, from these people who trained us. But it's it may be effective, but it's not biblical. Yeah. Yeah, talking about the inbreaking of life now, Christ's life, even through suffering, emboldens Christians to live Christianly through suffering and for all of life instead of thinking... I'll finally get all the benefits of the cross whenever I die, you know. And then we're all asking, why aren't we all just offing ourselves? You know, I was at this funeral with Josh a few months ago, and the guy talking was talking heaven up so much. He was like, this guy, you know, he died relatively younger, younger than you'd think he should have. This, this guy's having the best time of his life. He's hooting and hollering. He's having a good time up in heaven. We all can't wait till we get there. We, you know, we'd love to be there right now. That's not the message of the Bible or true Christian hope. Uh, so we have a hope that gets us through suffering now. We've got to move on. I would be happy to talk about this more because um, this is something that irks me a little bit when it's, when it's presented in the way that I've talked about. Um, One term that encapsulates the exclusive benefits of the gospel is salvation. Um, And the term salvation can be used in unclear or limiting ways. So Jesus came to save you. Well, as we'll read today in Mary's song, her conception of Jesus as Savior of the world is probably different than most Christians would talk about it, and for good reason. But the term salvation is confusing, but it's still really helpful. So here's an illustration of when it was really confusing. When I was like in third grade, um, I won't say who, what my uh, pastor at the time told me that one of the ways I would know I was a Christian is if I could help people get saved. And I had no leading people to salvation records in my scorebook at the time. So I went out the next day and as I was climbing a tree with a friend in the neighborhood, I asked him if he had ever been saved because I wanted to help him get saved. I was hoping he would say no, but he said yes, he had been saved, which was a little disappointing because he was one of the few kids I knew who didn't go to our church. So who else could I, you know, get saved? Um, And then he went on to tell me that one time he was drowning and his brother or someone saved him from drowning. Well, that can be really confusing terminology, so we have to um, kind of draw out what we mean by salvation, but salvation is still a helpful term. I'll quote this guy, Michael Bird: The gospel brings salvation. The biblical words for salvation in Hebrew and Greek are broad and include healing, forgiveness, restoration, rescue from danger, and eternal life. If we look at the beginning of the biblical story, salvation could be described as the reverse of the fall and being restored to peace with God. If we look at the end of the biblical story, salvation could be expressed as sharing in the new heaven and new earth that awaits God's people. The scriptures contain a rich and varied array of images that describe salvation, including the forgiveness of sins, justification, reconciliation, adoption, redemption, renewal, cleansing, and more. At the center of salvation, Is the promise that God in Christ and through the Holy Spirit ends the alienation and hostility between himself and his creatures so that he draws them into a relationship with himself that will last eternally? So, salvation can fill in all the gaps. You know, it's a good um, center point to work out from, but we've got to fill that in because, you know, even as secularized as our culture is, I think that the hangover from the second great awakening and beyond when you talk about salvation is go up to heaven when you die. And we need to communicate far more than that, far deeper realities. So those are some ways of talking about the exclusive benefits of the gospel. And any questions on that before we move on? Okay, I'm going to go very quickly through some general benefits of the gospel, general human benefits of the gospel. Uh, Basically, what I want to say in this section is that I would connect the reality of common grace and the offer of common grace to the crosswork of Christ. Uh, So I think that the common grace that every human experiences is still connected to the crosswork of Christ, even though it's not salvific grace. Salvific grace is for those who respond, right, but not the rest of the world. It's exclusive. But common grace is inclusive. All of us um, receive the smile of God in various ways through rain and harvest and stable economies and family and marriage. You know, like an unbelieving husband and wife can truly love each other through the common grace that's afforded in uh, the cross. So that's one aspect of the general human benefits of the gospel. Now you might be thinking, well, hasn't common grace been around forever? And and I just counter with, well, hasn't atonement for sin been around forever? You know, like these things are all pointing forward to the cross and confirmed in and supplied by the cross. How does that how does that uh, connect then with what Christ is in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he connects common grace there or whatever you know, the goodness to the goodness of God. Yeah. The mercy of God. Yep. So and Yeah, and, and that's offered as mercy and justice collide at the cross. And they don't collide, they really cohere. But God's character is most fully revealed at the cross in Jesus. So he can say that, and then he, Jesus proves it in his action and sources it, right? So um, we could talk about this more if you want. But I would just say that all of God's character is fully revealed in Jesus Christ, and that the point that that happens is on the cross um, most definitively. That's what John tells us, for example, in 1 John 3, when he says, No one's seen God at any time. Weird full stop. Like, we have to get in, like, follow his argument. Um, and then he tells us to love one another. He just told us that Jesus revealed God's love through his sacrificial way of being, and now we reveal God's love through our sacrificial way of being. So people see the character of God when we imitate him as we're conformed to the image of Christ. Um, And that is another benefit of the gospel. Wherever there are people transformed by the gospel, the area around them becomes a better place if they're actually being conformed to be more like Jesus. In the same way, um, with less miraculous uh, gusto, in the same way that Christ um, bettered everywhere that he went, so too Christians should better everywhere that they go. You know, throughout history we see this as Christians lead the way in building hospitals and adoptions and all other kinds of good deeds. Well, Christians are the ones who have Jesus showing them to be good Samaritans. So one of the benefits of the gospel is that the world is filled with um, the preservative uh, salt-like people of Christ who radiate or radiate out gospel transformation and make the world a better place wherever they are. So your neighborhood, hopefully, is a better neighborhood because there's a Christian in it who's showing people what it is to be a Christian through the way that you live in um, the way that you serve your neighbors. Um, hopefully Burnsville is a better place because of things that we do here. This is why one of our purposes is to um, serve our neighbors, you know, we don't just speak the gospel, we serve our neighbors as people transformed by the gospel, making the world a better place, just like Jesus did. Uh, then cosmic benefits of the gospel, all, all I have time to say here is that Jesus, as the king, initiates the new creation. And in fact, all who come to him become new creations, and uh, he eventually will bring about the fullness of new creation as heaven comes down to earth that's depicted in Reve- the end of revelation um, any quick comments or questions on that since I only have ten minutes to do the the last sections here okay uh, chapter four is who is the God of the Gospel? This is a significant point because Jesus made a big deal about coming to bring people to the Father often we partly rightly, talk about being a Christian as um, loving Jesus and looking at Christ and abiding in him. But Jesus's driving message over and over again was, I'm bringing you to the Father. Uh, The author of Hebrews makes this point as well. How is it that we can go before the throne of God? Well, because we have a high priest, Jesus, who sanctifies the sanctuary with his blood right? This is, again, back to the sanctification terminology. He cleanses it. He allows us to draw near to God. So to be a Christian is to be someone who can now be restored into the presence of God, who can have God dwelling with us. In that, Jesus reveals the Trinitarian nature of God. This is a distinguishing mark of the Christian faith. There are some heretical um, belief systems that come really close when it comes to Jesus, but they are not Christian. This sets us apart from really, I think, any other religion. Uh, and, and you know, we're theists, but we're more properly tritheists, you know, if, if we could say it that way. Uh, there's this guy at Central Seminary in Plymouth, Kevin Bowder, who talks about it that way. He's like, we're not theists; we're tritheists. That doesn't mean we worship three gods, but we worship one God in three. It's complicated, but but the Trinity is revealed in the Gospel is the father is often pictured as the author of of redemption, um, the son as the enactor of redemption, and the spirit is the applier of redemption. It's too broad for our investigation here, but there's a book um, called The Deep Things of God, How the Trinity Changes Everything by this guy Fred Sanders. That would be a really enriching read if you are thinking, man, I'm more of a Christian than I am a Trinitarian. I I don't know that I'd identify as a Trinitarian. Read the deep things of God, and and you probably will by the end of it. So I want to briefly talk about how do we share and respond to the gospel. Um, We have to share the gospel. Human testimony is required for the gospel to spread across the globe. God uses miraculous ways of doing this through visions and other ways apart from human testimony. But human testimony is the natural means by which the gospel is spread. It's the way the gospel was spread in the early church. That's how the early church grew, and that's the way the church grows today. So how do we do this? First, we do it through witness in word. We speak the gospel. We testify to King Jesus. Our words are are necessary. Um, We need to declare the kingship of Jesus, the sinfulness of humanity, and the possibility of restoration to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Um, we we have to declare this message. There, there's no way around it. Um, now, that shouldn't be like a beat you over the head, get out there and go do, door to door, you know, handing out tracts or something. But we declare the kingship of Christ with our words. That's one of our callings as we take up the mission of the church. Um, when we do this, we should be thoughtful about how we do it and we should get to know the people that we're talking to. Sometimes we have opportunities to declare the gospel to people we don't know. But for most of us, we are in relationships with people, and we come to know them. And one of our jobs, as Julie was pointing out, is to help them see that they have a need. And different people um, can see different needs in their life um, more easily than some other needs. And we should tap into those first. You know, I try to convince someone they have a need that you'll never convince them of because they're too arrogant and proud to see it. Help them see what they already know to be true. Like if they actually um, confided in someone, what they hate about themselves or the thing that they're struggling with. You know, the, So these three pictures that I gave in the meaning of the cross, I think we can dive into those that, in, that we can have those lead us into the conversation. So I think if you're talking, you know, I worked in group homes for a long time. Almost all my coworkers were from Egypt or Nigeria, and they would often talk about, like, demonic oppression and these sorts of things. Well, sharing the gospel with them, probably Christus Victor, the victory of Christ over the forces of evil, is probably the best entry point into the gospel for them because they're very conscious of these dark powers that they need victory over, and they're trying all sorts of ways through pagan religions that are not actually doing it. It probably just encourages it. Um, and for someone in a legalistic tradition like the United States of America, you know, this is a side note. You you might, when you hear of the legalism of the Torah or something, or of the Pharisees, we have way more laws in the United States than the Pharisees had governing the life of Israel. Count them up. It's, it's bizarre. Um, but in a legalistic society or with somebody like, you know, we'll address Martin Luther again since we already talked about him, someone who like is in fear in a thunderstorm knowing they're guilty before God and deserving wrath. Well, that penal substitutionary atonement um, picture is probably the best one to lead into uh, for somebody. What what was the first image that I used last time? I've been doing it in reverse order. I I forget what I, I said. It was important, though. Okay. Don't, don't you forget. Um, uh, whatever the case might be, is, is we, oh, I, whatever the case might be, you want to lead, oh, redemption. That's it. Redemption. So, you know, I think of talk, freedom from bondage. You know, I think of someone maybe who is dealing with, like, some kind of an addiction. Well, talking about the redemption of God might be more appropriate than um, talking and helpful than trying to convince them of penal substitutionary atonement. You know, they're, they're not feeling guilty before God. They're feeling captive um, to whatever this thing is. And we want to lean into the pictures and then through discipleship, bring the full, um, uh, you know, art gallery into view as they grow in their understanding of the work of the cross. Um, and then we do this through talking about our own story, our own lives. Um, we talk about the way that Jesus's kingship and crosswork transforms us and gives us the fullness of life in the present and the hope of the resurrection in the future. We also do this with our actions. Um, we must have words and we also must have actions. Um, what do you call somebody who says that something is true, particularly a religious claim, and doesn't live it out? We call them hypocrites. What do you call people who declare the gospel but don't embody the gospel in the way that they live. A hypocrite. Um, hypocritical witness does nothing to help Christ in his kingdom. Um, so we want to bring the two together always. We want to be people who speak the gospel, and we want to be people who do um, good deeds, who transform our communities through our actions. Uh, so that's one of the reasons, as I've already commented, why we try to do good things, why it would be good for families to, you know, go do something for Feed My Starving Children or show up and hand out water bottles at a city parade. Like, all of these things are good things to do. Um, We want to be like Jesus. Um, And through our actions, we reveal God um, who loves others, and we participate in the mission of Christ who brings not only spiritual flourishing, but also, as he promises in the end, brings physical flourishing as well. So how should we respond to the gospel? I like the way that Bates puts this. First, he starts, we should shout, sing, praise, and dance. You know, when you think of responding to the gospel, do you think about it in that way? Well, we should. King Jesus has come. You know, we should be joyful about this. Even as in our joy, we recognize our um, sorrow over our sin and the need for repentance. Uh, there's, there was something right when people were throwing palm branches down before Jesus and shouting as he entered into the city. And there was everything wrong about them abandoning him. Well, we, we need both, right? We need um, to rejoice at the, the kingship and, well, we don't need to abandon. When I say we need both, we need both joy and repentance, right? So we need to respond to the gospel with faith. This involves believing certain things and trusting that the gospel is God's provision for salvation. Yet the idea of faith transcends a mere mental or emotional activity to include the whole person. Um, It would be good for us when we talk about believing in Jesus to also talk about entrusting ourselves to Jesus. Because it puts us in the realm of Christ and living under his rule and command. Second, we must respond with repentance. It's not just a feeling or a sense of remorse, though it includes that feeling. It's an active change of mind, heart, and behavior. It's turning away from wrong activities and sin inspired allegiances and turning toward God in obedience, in allegiance to Christ. So faith and repentance. And then this is often left out in a response to the gospel, but I think it should be included. Third, we must respond with baptism. Baptism is a deliberate identification with the death, resurrection, and enthronement, not merely of Jesus, but of Jesus in his royal capacity as the Christ. Read Romans 6, 1 through 11, and that's the point Paul is making there. We need to include baptism as a response to the gospel, even if there's a time gap between um, the initial expression of faith and repentance and the act of baptism, we need to include it as a response to the gospel because the New Testament authors do. When in Acts you read of the gospel proclaimed, the, when people say, what must I do to be saved? Repent and be baptized. You know, So we want to say that baptism is not salvific as a thing in itself, but it's a pledge of allegiance act that identifies a person as the kingdom citizen of Christ. Um, baptism is a symbol, and symbols mean many things, um, but often there's something at the core of a symbol. And and I think that this is it. It's a pledge of fidelity to Christ. Entry into his kingdom, citizenship. Um, It's a a public reality. This needs to be included in our uh, call of the gospel. In part because the biblical authors instruct us and demonstrate it. But also because it keeps us from uh, declaring a privatized gospel. Where salvation is about you and Jesus. Because baptism... Can't, you can't baptize yourself. Baptism brings you into the community of faith. Um, so just as someone isn't saved to be by themselves with Jesus somewhere individually, no one can be baptized in that way. Uh, so it clarifies the initial outcome of the gospel, which is a formation of a people of God. All right, we're out of time. Sorry for being two minutes over. You're dismissed. I'll, I'll stick around and talk if you want to talk more if something wasn't clear.